You're listening to Let's Talk Trio on podcast. Welcome everyone to another edition of Let's Talk Trio via Podbean and all available podcasting apps. My name is Juan Rivas and I am the host for Let's Talk Trio. Every download for this episode really supports our program. So share this on your social media feeds, uh, anywhere that you can really help support us by downloading the episode or downloading the Podbean app and listening to Let's Talk Trio. If you'd like to be an underwriter for any of our episodes of Let's Talk Trio, you can get in touch with me by going to Facebook and messaging me directly. There are no financial obligations for being an underwriter for Let's Talk Trio. I am very happy to have a fourth episode already, four episodes in for Let's Talk Trio. It is a huge honor to have been here for already four episodes, and we're frankly just getting started. Uh, We do have a lot of guests lined up, um, and I am very excited to bring those guests to you through the podcast. If you'd like to sign up to be a guest and to tell your story, uh, again, hit us up on Facebook, go to Let's Talk Trio to our page, and then send me a direct message. We will get all the details sorted out. If, it, if you're here in Colorado, uh, primarily more in the Fort Collins or Loveland area, we are able to re- reach out and give you an in-person interview. That would be great. Uh, but most of these interviews that I've done so far have been phone calls. So again, that would not be a problem. Uh, we can also do Skype, Zoom, or whatever other method of communication you would prefer. And again, this is really more to get your story out there. I am interviewing staff, students, alum, anybody really that wants to come onto the show and talk about the TRIO program and their experiences, or even if they want to discuss what policies are coming up for TRIO. So I will also take people that are representatives or directly involved with legislation of TRIO programs. Today's episode features a very special guest, Rebecca Scott from the University of Arkansas. Rebecca graduated with an Associates in Applied Science Business Administration from Northeastern Oklahoma A&M College in Miami, Oklahoma. From 2017 to 2018, Rebecca was awarded the Outstanding Phi Beta Lambda member and received a Certificate of Achievement for Leadership and Certification from FBLA slash PBL. I am very excited to have our special guest today who will share her story and her experiences and what TRIO did to change your life. Rebecca has a remarkable story to share. Please sit back and enjoy this podcast. So just to get to know you a little bit, I saw the email, I read your story, and it moved me. I was uh, I shed a couple tears, and it was really moving. Um, kind of give me your backstory, like all the way starting back from wherever you want to start from. Okay, um, well, I think the best place to start is at the beginning. Sure. So I am the youngest of four girls, and the cat was with girl too, so my dad was surrounded by girl. Um, his oldest daughter he had with his first marriage, and um, she unfortunately got adopted to, well, I wouldn't say, in his eyes it was unfortunate but it was the best for her he she was adopted by her stepdad so he met my mother and then he had another three girls and he was a really bad alcoholic came out of the air force drunk unfortunately and my mother um with all i really don't know what her side of the story is on her side of the family we have no clue um there was a rift in that family um, when her mother died. I was about three, I think. 
and her nurse, she was just in a brother all arguing, and so they kind of just like cut ties, and they don't talk to each other, so we have no clue on that side of the family, unfortunately, and my mother's pretty, I don't want to say selfish, I think she's more of, she doesn't know how to show love, I think the way that she shows love is she buys you things, and then it's um, more all about her. And my dad's kind of the same way, except for it was, you know, he worked and he never not had a job. But when he came home, it was okay. Now I got to drown ever, you know, all of my feelings, everything out with fear. And he was constantly drunk. So I lived with that for about six years till they finally divorced. Um, my grandparents, the only grandparents that I remember is my dad's parents. So that'll be the ones that I'll say my grandparents would be them. Um, they were salt of the earth, churchgoers. You know, my grandpa was um, a farmer, really small farm, 40 acres, um, had dairy cows, you know, chickens and a big garden, you know, and that was our sanctuary. I think that would be what I would call my safe place. You know, that was the normal that we didn't get on a daily basis. That's where you got all your love. That's where you got all our morals and values and things. But, you know, as time progresses, you have that trauma from your childhood and it drags on, unfortunately, in my case. Um, so whenever they were, when I was six, they divorced. My mother moved us straight, literally, into my stepdad's place, which was a duplex. Um, he stayed on one side and then we took up the other side. So you're basically by ourselves, three girls. Um, we weren't the nicest kids to each other. We fought a lot. Um, but me and my older sister, Janie, um, she is five years older than me. Uh, she basically became my mom. She was the one that protected me, kept me safe. Um, there was a lot of violence between my dad and my mom, and then my mom would have violence back on us, and it's, 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 really a, it's really kind of sad because hurt people hurt people, and um, it, in her mind, I think it was it was easier to have it on us than it was on her, but then when we moved in with our stepdad, it was like total separation. Like we weren't allowed on that side unless it was dinner. We didn't see her that much. She was also going to school while she was getting her RN where we were just basically left to our own devices. And my older, older sister, Kathy, which is seven years older than me. Um, she didn't, she's kind of just like my mother and she resented me ever being born. And you know, Looking back, I can understand. You know, she she bared a lot of brunt of my parents' craziness, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but as years go on, you know, we moved and I was, well, I wouldn't say tortured, but, you know, kids are bullies. Kids were horrible bullies. You know, I lived in a very small town. Everybody, your business. Mm-hmm. And I mean everybody. You know, my class size would have been 23 if I would have graduated. Um, my sisters graduated with like 15 to 20 kids. So 
even though it's a small town, everybody knows everything about you. You make a move, everybody knows. So scandal, you know, my mother marrying my stepdad and because he was considerably older, um, it, it, it really takes a toll on the kids more than anything, I think. Um, but yeah, kids are really cool. Um, I, I won't say that I was hyperactive because that's not really what I was. I had more of ADD mm-hmm. and it was really hard for me to concentrate and to learn. And so when you have so many disruptions around you, it was very hard for me. So when I hit third grade, that was when the big boom of Ritalin was very popular. You know, they started feeding those out like candy then. So I was put on maximum dose three times a day. I took it in the morning, at noon, and then as soon as I got home from school. So you can imagine I was zombified during school. And then I would get made for that because I... I mean, I concentrated, but I could only focus on one thing at a time. And so it was very hard to have conversations at times because I couldn't, I couldn't talk to more than one person. So it kind of made it more difficult. But I did have a very best friend that I, we are literally, I think, not even two months apart. <laughs> and our moms had been sort of friends, you know, and they kept... They kept me saying as well, her father was a preacher and her mother was absolutely the best mother you could ever ask for. Um, I really appreciated everything that they have done for me. Um, they would take me on weekends and take me on trips and, you know, going through all that, you know, they really were kind of like the backbone they have besides just my grandparents, you know, like they really helped me stay focused and, and try to stay on a good path. Um, we fast forward just a little bit. Uh, fourth grade when they took me off of Ritalin, um, I'm talking cold turkey, like you didn't just titrate off this, like it was, okay, you're done taking it. And so I ended up failing fifth grade. Um, I had a teacher that didn't like me at all because I didn't understand what she was trying to teach me. Um, I'm more of a visual, and then I have to um, also hear you tell me, but at the same time, I have to show you that I can do it so that I know where I'm making, making those mistakes, and she didn't want to do that with me. So they failed me, and my best friend also failed, so at least I had a comrade. Um, and then the bullying got worse because, you know, now you are labeled as being stupid or um, it's not good enough for everyone else. And then you go from all your classmates going ahead of you and they never talk to you ever again. And then you go to the new classmates that are just like, well, what's wrong with you? You know, but I did find a few good friends that we kept good with until um, I got to eighth grade and my mom decided to move. We moved to a larger town about an hour away, and I went from this little bitty small school to a school with, like, 2,000 kids around about in my graduating class. I mean, huge school. I was in shock. (laughs) Like, I've never had that many people in one space at a time. Um, It really 
was not a good time for me to be moving. Um, ninth grade, I got into some trouble. Um, I learned to uh, smoke pot and drink beer, and even though I knew it was wrong, but I had to fit in somehow. Um, so we stayed there a year. Um, my mom kicked me out at 15. I moved in with my sister, Janie. She just had her, she just had my niece. So I would live in babysitter for her, which was fine by me. It kept me out of trouble. Um, my sister was going back to college, and she was working full-time, supporting me and her daughter. Um, so it was really difficult on her that I, like I said, I appreciate everything that my sister's ever done for me. Like, she really kept me from bad mistakes, but unfortunately those bad mistakes would eventually hit me soon. Um, I stayed with my sister for a year, and then I had to get out of, because I went right back to the same town that I just moved from, you know. I went from small town, big city, back to the same town, and the rumors went flying. And I was this horrible kid. I did all kinds of things. You never realize what kind of things you have done until the rumor starts. And you'll be surprised at how... Um, how adventurous you could be in somebody's eyes when you were like, I didn't even come close to doing half of what they had said. Um, so I moved in with my grandparents and went to another school. Mm -hmm. And my best friend switched schools as well because the bullying had gotten so bad. Um, it was a little bit better, but not by much. Um, you know, they had bigger cliques than I've ever seen. Like, I mean, even in the big school, they had cliques, but it wasn't as noticeable as it was in the next town over. Um, and I was only there for my junior, senior year, so to be honest, I really didn't care. Um, math is my nemesis, and I'm trying very hard to be nice friends with it. <laughs> I don't understand algebra. It does not, I don't get it. don't get it, but, you know, I've got to give it in order to get through. Mm -hmm. But, um... I passed, I literally passed Algebra 2 with a D my senior year, and that was the last time we were allowed to pass a class and still graduate with a D. So I was like, thank you, Lord. <laughs> I made it through. But after my junior year, I moved in with my father because my grandparents sold their farm and moved to town, and I didn't want to move to town. Um, plus, my curfew was 10 o'clock on weekends, 9 o'clock on weekdays. So, you know, you, you're a teenager, you want to go out with your friends, you want to see them, you know. Living with my father, um, I was getting his, I was getting um, child support for my dad, and I was also getting a social security benefit for my stepdad, um, even though my mom and him were long divorced, um, she never changed it. So I petitioned Social Security and said, look, I'm living with my sister, I'm living with my grandparents, but whatever, they just turned it over to me and said, there you go, until you're 18, you get benefits. And I'm like, that's fine. So at my dad's house, I paid him back his child support because I was living there, but he still had to pay it by law. Um, and he wasn't going to go to the court and try to change it. He's like, it's just not worth it. He wasn't paying that much. He was only paying like $123 a month finish off and I was like it doesn't really matter so he let me have my stepmom's truck and uh, I got about almost $500 a month 
And when you put that kind of money in a teenager's hand, that's very, very dangerous. Right, I mean, um, that money seems to go really, really fast, I think. It went very fast. I was the cash cow, so. Oh. I was definitely with the cash cow. Um, so I had my stepmom's truck, the old, beat, old beater. It was a 67 Ford pickup truck, you know, rusted bed and all, you know. It didn't matter if we hit a tree, you know. I mean, it was already dented, so. We had this place that we could go to, kind of out, it was in the next state over, because we're like right at the edge of Oklahoma and Missouri, so it's a little place across the state line that we got to go to, but there was no alcohol allowed, but you have it in full of like, kind of nowhere, sort of like, you know, out in the country, so there's plenty of back roads that we could all go down, and we did, you know, we went out there, and we would find, you know, we had older friends that were 21 that would, you know, go to the liquor, to the, well, not the liquor store, well, there was the liquor store at the road, but we'd have them go on the gas station, which was right in front of, uh, or right beside where this um, little, it was supposed to be friendly for teens for us to give us something to do, really, you know, and all country dancing and what have you and we were rough and rowdy kids and we'd go get drunk and come in and you know have fun and then drive home and I hate to say it but drive home drunk um the one time me and my friend were sober when we came in um the owner came up to us and asked us if we were intoxicated because we weren't our usual selves um so we were like okay so we went and Contract down the back road and came back and he's like, well, that, you know, he saw us cut a little bit later and he's like, well, you guys are back here, almost settled, you know, we came up with this lie that, you know, my boyfriend had left me and cheated on me or something and so it, my dad didn't care what I did as long as I didn't drink and drive home. He, we had a couple of parties at my dad's house, um, as long as everybody turned their keys in to him, he didn't care. Like, and he would leave us, like, and he didn't care if we were outside, he didn't care as long as we didn't wake him up or as long as we didn't trash the place. But I really wish I had that parent and not that friend. Mm-hmm. Because by senior year, I went into a total destruction of health spin. And all I wanted was to make my dad love me the way that I wanted a father to love me. And he couldn't show me that because he was so far in his addiction that I don't think he realized that until he realized how much it was killing me that I wasn't getting that love from him. Hmm. He really didn't have a much relationship with us kids. My mom prevented that. So it was more or less he just got more and more depressed, you know, and I still got to see him. My grandparents would take me, take me to go see him. It didn't matter if he lived in the shack down by the, by the river or wherever. I didn't care, and I would go see him, but he just, he, he, he doesn't even remember that. He thinks it was my sister that went and see him, even though my grandma told him, no, it was, it was for that she came, and she saw you, she loved you, and he's like, next was Janie. And that's fine, too. I, I've taken a long time to make that piece, but at that time, I was just so hungry for love. You know, I had love for my grandparents, absolutely. I had love for my best friend's parents, 
but I wasn't getting that fatherly love that I needed. I mean, my grandpa was doing the best he could, but, you know, he's, he was, what, in his 70s at that time, almost 80s. You know, he was in his 80s when I graduated high school. So, you know, it was it was hard for him to, you know, be that father because he's gotten older and I got really rebellious and living with my dad, it was, it was really strange. Yeah. So I did one thing that I do regret. Um, my father convinced me that I needed to go in the military, any military service because I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And my grandpa was in the army and he was in the air force. So I should just carry that on because he doesn't have a son to make that happen, right? Well, I did, but I got out. I didn't go in for the right reasons, and if I joined the Army, I could literally stayed six weeks. I couldn't handle it. It was not, I wasn't there because I wanted to be there. Um, I wasn't there because, you know, this was something that I wanted to do, and I just was so tired of being told what to do every minute of the day literally and it didn't matter if something wasn't my fault or not we were all being punished and so to me it was like I was right back at home again and it didn't matter who didn't do the dishes or who didn't do this we were all you know getting that backlash and I just couldn't I couldn't handle it and um I called my dad and told him that I was coming home and that was the first time that he disowned me so when I came home, um, I went straight to a friend's house, and I stayed with her and her parents. Um, and I kept in contact with my grandparents and told them what happened and what have you, and I got a job and was trying to go to college, so I started at um, Northeast Oklahoma, A&M College in Miami, Oklahoma, and uh, trying to work and go to school and support myself. I got in a little small trailer to get by with, you know, and I just couldn't. I couldn't feed myself and go to school. And at that time, you know, I didn't want to try to take student loans out. You know, I just didn't want to put myself in any more debt. You know, I didn't have debt, and I just wanted to, you know, try to do the best I could, and I didn't make really good decisions after that. Um, I kept drinking. I drank every weekend. I went partying with my friends. Um, it was really hard for those from, say, 19 until 22. I was really not in a good place at all. I met my daughter's dad. And here's where your trauma from your childhood comes back because you don't pick the right people when you have that sense, when you grow up in a, in a sense of, you know, alcoholism and this is what normal looks like and your grandparents are supposed to be the only stable people in your life, um, you don't really understand why you pick the people you do until you start analyzing it yourself, but Devin was an alcoholic and I didn't see that. I just thought as went drinking just like I did every weekend. We're not alcoholics. We're not, you know, I'm not doing this every day. I'm not like my dad. But lo and behold, you, you start those patterns, unfortunately. So I was with him for about two years. Um, I, unfortunately, he 
gave me an STD within three months of us being together. So I bottomed out my self-esteem really quick because his explanation was that he didn't do it. I must have gave it to him. And um, nobody else is going to want me, and that's why I have to stay with him. And you kind of get into that emotional abuse type thing where it's comfortable for you because you're, you're used to that emotional abuse and you don't think that anybody else is going to love you or accept you or anything for, for who you really are. And um, so I stayed for two years, and finally he kicked me out. He wanted a new girlfriend. Um it crushed me. It literally just crushed my heart in half. I'm so and sorry to hear that. I, uh-huh. No, I just said I'm so sorry uh-huh. to hear that. That's okay. It gets better. It <laughs> okay. gets better eventually. <laughs> I promise. But I had to go through a really dark period. Yeah, I was in a very dark period. I um, didn't care about me anymore. Um, I literally went to a dark place in, in, in my soul, I think, at that point. I just went to the bars, and I thought, whoever, you know, and I never lied to them. I never once lied to them. I told them, you know, hey, this is what I have, and we just have to be careful, you know. Um, I have type 2 herpes from him, um, so it's not like it's a, I don't want to say it's not like it's a big deal, because it is, but it's a little bit less than what it could have been. Like, I'm very lucky, and I count my lucky stars every day. Um, definitely thank God that that's all I got. Um, and these men, you know, they don't care. They're drunk, and you're drunk, and it doesn't really matter. And I, I'm going to say I slept with every single person that I met at the bar, but I really looked for love and sex and I thought that was the only way that I was going to get that love I, that I craved and you know I wasn't going to get it from a boyfriend they don't treat you well you know and even in that time I really didn't think that I was going to you know make anything of myself really so we skip ahead a few months um, Devin has this issue um, he likes to get onto the river and go canoeing and floating and what have you, but where he goes is, during the day, it's friendly, family friendly to a point until about five, six o'clock rolls around, and then all your drunks start coming in on the weekends, and then it becomes not family friendly family friendly at all. Um, it gets very violent. There's bikers, there's, you know, and I'm not into games, but you have families that are, um, we have... I don't know how to say it. I don't want to make it sound like it's a mob or anything like that, but there, there's families that stick together, and um, you don't cross them. And if you just happen to date one of their men, um, you better not be the one that cheats. You better not be the one that, you know, breaks their heart or whatever because you get that backlash, so to speak. Um, you know, they are very tight-knit families around here, and they will, you know, I'm not going to say they're going to kill you or anything like that, but you can get beat up. You can get severely beat up or, you know, other things happen. And I don't like to be down there. It didn't make me feel comfortable being down there. Um, But Devin was fine with me so that I would go home, which was fine by me, but then he would go cheap. And so after 
after that summer was over and he sowed his little wild oats in, so to speak, um, he come crawling back, um, which we were both up about 10 months. And I, of course, took him back. Of course I did. And I found that I was literally a month pregnant on Father's Day of 2004. And that changed my entire world. It was 4 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Um, I was working at the hospital, so I knew the ER doctor that was working. So I kind of walked in and said, hey, would you do me a favor? You know, could you put me on the books and give me a pregnancy test? Um, I was like, I don't trust, you know, the ones over the counter. And they're like, it's the same thing. It doesn't matter if it's a dollar or five dollars. It tests the same thing. It's the same thing. But she's like, yeah, I'll... We'll do it. We'll do a blood test to see how far along you are. And when I called Devin, his first reaction was, are you serious? And I said, well, yeah, would you like to see the paperwork? I mean, they can bring it to you, you know. Um, Then his second thought was, we'll all get some money together. In my naive brain at that moment, I thought, oh, okay, well, he's going to help me take care of this baby and we're going to be okay. No, that was not his intention by any means. He said, I'll get some money together. It shouldn't cost very much and we'll we'll take care of it. And I was like, what do you mean? It's not going to cost very much. Diapers cost a lot of money. And he goes, no, well, you're going to have an abortion, right? And I was like, no, (laughs) my dead body. No, you'll have to kill me first. I'm not doing that. I don't believe in that. I don't think that's something that I would ever do. And he's like, fine, we'll talk about it. Just just, just come over, you know. He was living with his mom. Of course, his mom's excited. She's, you know, over the moon, you know. But she's also his drinking partner as well. And she goes to the river and drinks. And so I'm like, okay. So fast forward just a little bit, you know. Devin is not the nicest person either, and I'm not saying that he was very violent every day or anything like that, but he didn't like that I had a smart mouth, and my smart mouth got me a lot of trouble, and I did push buttons, and I'm not saying that, you know, my part is nothing, but I did have a smart mouth, but no, he had no right to lay hands on me at all, even when I was pregnant or when I wasn't pregnant, but I also know my responsibility in that I also stayed and I also pushed a little bit too much when I shouldn't have, and I knew better. Um, so not very far in my pregnancy, about five months, I think it was about five months pregnant, um, I was put on bed rest. So when I was not at work, I had to be at home, in bed, not doing anything. Um, of course, that was very difficult because... Um, when you have a boyfriend that doesn't understand, and he doesn't want this kid in the first place, but he's not accepting this kid, um, and he's trying to grow up, and then he went and bought a house, and he really did try at first, I'll have to say that, until that Thanksgiving in 2004, I was put on full bread rest. Um, I was preeclamptic. Um, my blood pressure was through the roof um my doctor was like we really cannot allow you to work 
you cannot stand up for very long periods of time. Um, I don't even want you taking a shower. He says, I want, you know, you sit in a chair if you're taking a shower, sit in the bathtub, whatever you have to do. He said, you have to be on strict bed rest. I have never seen a man be so jealous of somebody that has to stay in bed. I am the type of person I would rather be working than being stuck in this bed and not being able to do stuff for myself, Mm -hmm. which I still had to do stuff for myself. I still had to cook and I still had to clean and what have you because, you know, nobody was going to give me that free ride. But he was so jealous and that started pulling us apart a little bit more. And I don't think he realized that for the sake of me and our child if I did not rest and if I did not stay in that bed, I could have lost the baby or we could have lost both of us or me and the baby would have survived. And even at that time, we didn't even know if it was a boy or a girl. We couldn't tell. My lovely daughter um, loved to do somersaults. And she did somersaults my entire pregnancy, it seemed like. Um I was nauseous from the time I got up till the time that I went to bed all day long. Um, Even in ultrasounds, um, I would have to drink about a gallon and a half of water to hold her in place just to measure her, and she would still find a way to flip back over. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, So you can imagine how how sickening that is, and then to be yelled at because you have to stay in bed. And... I was like, this is insanity. Like, you know, it's not my fault. And I was a beach well at that point. I mean, I literally, um, I gained 110 pounds with her. Um, I was so swollen and lost a lot of muscle tone and, you know, and he was jealous of that. And I'm, it just, it, to me, it just, it's, it's insanity. Like, how do you get, in, how, how can you be so jealous of somebody that, doesn't even want to be in bed, you know? Yeah, I'm so sorry you had to put up with that. Yeah, and I put up with it because I didn't really have much of a choice. I didn't have anywhere to go. You know, I really didn't. Um, I couldn't go with my mom. We didn't have, we still don't have a good relationship. I couldn't go with my dad for no reason. He was mad at me, and I was disowned again for the who knows how many times by then, too. And, you know, my grandparents are older. They couldn't, they don't need to have handle, you know, me and my kid, um, they were already having to handle my older sister Kathy's son. You know, he was only a few years old, and you know, I mean, they had their hands full. And my sister has her daughter, and you know, I can't. There was nowhere for me to go, so I dealt with it, and I dealt with it, and I dealt with it, and so we ended up moving. Right before Emily was born, we moved to a new house, and this was like a two-story house kind of like a bi-level house kind of shoved into like a you know, like the top parts like the top of the hill and the bottom parts in the hill you know kind of level and of all things he had to have the spiral staircase and that's how you went downstairs hmm. I hate spiral staircases for one the steps are so small and that scares me anyway so he didn't make it easy on me at all whatsoever so I got in the process of walking outside and walking down the hill and going into the bottom because that's where our laundry room uh, was of course it was you know our bedrooms are upstairs kitchens are all upstairs you know so I had 
literally got to the point where I would just throw laundry over the side of the stairwell and pray that I didn't fall down the stairs going down. And then I'd pick up all the laundry again just to do laundry. Like, he just didn't, he didn't care. He just, I think at that point, he he was just miserable. Um, he was working nights. He didn't work. He worked three nights, one week, four nights the next. And it was all weekends. So he didn't get to go party on the weekends anymore. He had to be a responsible adult, so to speak. Um, so I landed in the hospital um, at the end of December, beginning of January. And um, my blood pressure was through the roof. I was just going for my normal weekly routine checkups, you know, and I was seeing a, a specialist at that time, too, and he's like, oh, how are you feeling? And I was like, yeah, I have a little bit of a headache. I said, but I'm okay. And he said, oh, well, do you know what your blood pressure is? I said, no, not really. He's like, well, it's way too high and we're putting you in the hospital. I was like, oh, okay, well, can I swing by my grandparents on the way and let them know I'm going to the hospital? And he said, by no certain terms will you stop anywhere. You will go straight from my office, which was literally, like, up the road from the hospital. And my grandparents were literally, like, two blocks away from his office. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, by no circumstances will you um, uh, stop. He said, you will not pass go. You will not do anything. You will go straight to the hospital. You will not walk to a women's ward. You will be wheelchaired, you know, because I'm stubborn. And he, you know, I worked at the hospital. Like I said, you know, all these doctors knew me. They knew how stubborn I was. And mm-hmm. I was a good worker, too. Um, and he said, you will do what you're told. And I said, okay, okay, all right, I guess so. You know, I went straight to the hospital and, you know, I borrowed the phone and called my grandma and grandpa and told them what happened and called Devin and said, hey, you know, you're going to have to know that I'm going to be in the hospital and I don't know how long I'm going to be here. You know, can you bring me some stuff? What have you? So I didn't stay in very long. Um, it was, I hate being in the hospital. I hate being in the hospital. <laughs> I work there, but I don't want to be there right. 24-7, you know. But I knew the nurses, I knew the doctors, I knew the aides, you know, so that makes it a lot better, but I was not getting any better. Um, so I called him um, the night of the of January 6th, and I said, no, January 5th, I'm sorry, January 5th or January 6th, no, January 6th, I called him, and I said, hey, we're getting ready to have this kid, and she's six weeks early, and I said, you need to come now and meet me at the hospital. We're getting transferred, and we're going to Tulsa, which is about an hour and a half away. And if you want to know what hospital I'm in and where we're at and you want to see your kid being born, you might want to come so you can call the ambulance. I said, you've got 30 minutes. It takes about that long to get where he lives to the hospital. So we're waiting, and I'm, of course, being tortured because, you know, good old doctors, you know, they start, you know, new IVs and all this stuff, and they're injecting stuff to keep you from being in labor. This kid was coming whether we wanted her to or not. Mm -hmm. Um, They couldn't stop my labor. Um, She wasn't even in position, but I was just, it was time whether we wanted to be or not. So I would say about 45 minutes after I called them, um, they finally found me at hospital. 
it was like Babyville in January, I swear. Um, the hospitals were completely full. Um, and there was only, they needed to find a NICU that was able to accept her as well as keep me, have let me have a bed in the same hospital. We didn't want to have to separate us. So they finally found the hospital. Um, they moved some things around and got me in. Um, so they're like, okay, so where's, you know, where's Devin? And I was like, I don't know. I call him again and he hadn't even left. He is drunker than skunk, and his mom's just as drunk. And I said, well, we're leaving in 20 minutes. They are going to hold off for 20 minutes so that you can get here so you can follow them. Otherwise, they have to go. It's either now or never. And I said, we can't have this kid here. We have to be where she can be at NICU, and I'm not going to be separated from my kid. So you make your own decisions. Needless to say, he got there in about 15 minutes. Um, and we went to Tulsa and, um, the funniest thing that I think I could say is I knew the nurse that went with me and I knew my ambulance driver and I knew the other, um, EMT that was there. Um, and they both told me, they said, you know, we're more than happy to have wings, but you're not, we're not getting our wings from you today. They get, um, like baby wings for delivering in the back of the ambulance. Mm -hmm. And, um, in my circumstance, they definitely did not need that. (laughs) Um, I was way too early. That would have been a very hard delivery. And if, if I was even allowed to even try to deliver at that point, so they're like, you have to hold off. Like that would be a choice that I would have, you know, but a lot of it was out of good humor, you know, and they kept me going all the way through, you know, that long, long drive. They even slowed down to the turnpike to make sure you could catch back up, you know. So we get into this hospital, and you, it's a teaching hospital, which I'm fine with until later. Um, and I always, I've seen two different residents. Um, they're like, yes, we're doctors, but we have to do our residency. I'm like, that's fine, whatever. I don't care at this point. Just make this headache go away, you know. I'm horrible headaches and they're like well I was supposed to have emergency c-section that night that did not happen um I was told that I was stable enough that we'll just do it in the morning I was like oh um my blood pressure's through the roof and you want to wait till tomorrow okay nothing I can do but to lay there so we're talking you know from midnight we probably got there about Oh, probably about one thirty, I want to say, and I was tired. I haven't slept probably in two days. Um, so fast forward a little bit, you know, it's about eight thirty, nine o'clock in the morning, and I am laying there. I have this horrible headache again. I asked the chart and the nurse that came in. I said, "Is there any way you can give me something for my headache? I just, you know, maybe some Tylenol or something. It's not that bad. It's just it's annoying. It's there." Um, so she comes back and gives me all for my headache, which I didn't know what that was. I thought, oh, okay, it'd be like Tylenol or like Tylenol number three or something or, you know, nothing big. I didn't react well with it. So as the doctor came in, like literally after she gives me this through my IV, there's nine residents standing in my room. Um, yes, I was the first preeclampsia case I got to see for a while. And my normal doctor that I haven't even met yet. 
he's like, I'm your doctor. We're going to get ready to take you to surgery. Are you ready? And I looked at him and I said, I'm going to be sick. And I wash out, like, you know, I white out really, really bad. I feel like I'm going to be sick. I had the nurse and the doctors fighting over me going, what did you give her? She's like, I just gave her scatol. She said she had a headache. He's like, what did you give her scatol? So I'm like, I'm still here, <laughs> you know, trying my best to not speak all over myself and everyone else. And then the next thing I remember is I am high as a kite. I've never been this high in my life. And I am in the surgery room, and I'm like, I don't care what you do to me, you know, at this point. So we're, they get me, we're, I'm getting ready to have her, and I absolutely loved my anesthesiologist. He understood my humor and me being high as a kite as well. And um, I think the best part of my experience with this is that Devin had to watch her being born, so to speak. He got to watch all the gruesome things of her being pulled out and all. Um, I think the scariest part was listening to my doctor explain to all these people how to cut me properly. Um, everybody got a turn, I think, at this point. Um, they ended up cutting me hip to hip. Huge, huge scar. That's huge. Um, because she was stuck on my left side. Um feet first and didn't want to come out <laughs> um and she had that little cord wrapped every which way but loose and so they had to get her out um but after Devin saw that and about passed out um I got to see her and then they you know had to take her to the NICU because she was so early but um and then I had him leave the room and I'm just laying there and I'm like, you know, I said, you can uh, give me a, a nice little tummy tuck while you're down there. I won't tell nobody. <laughs> I mean, I'm high as a kite. Of course, I'm going to say something. It's like you could hear a pin drop in this room, right? Yeah. And then it got really dead quiet. And my anesthesiologist, I can see him chuckling because I could see, you know, just what little I could see. And um, I guess they talked amongst themselves and very quiet, quietly. And uh, he looks over and he says, so, um... Do you want to go to sleep? <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. I haven't slept in a few days. Can we, I would love to go to sleep. <laughs> mm -hmm. So they put me out real quick. That's why I was asking for next time you talk to me. Come on. Yeah. Um, you know. So the next thing I remember is I wake up in the recovery room, and here is and Lee's NICU doctor, and he is in a motorized wheelchair. And he is bumping the sides of the door frame and doesn't care. And I couldn't stay awake. It took him like almost four and a half hours to get me back woke up again because they had knocked me out so good in surgery. And um, he told me later on, he said, uh, just to let you know, he said, they don't make these um, doors really wheelchair accessible. He said, so to get back at them, and because I can't fit through very well, I just knocked the pain off, and eventually they'll they'll fix these for me. Oh my gosh! He was the most amazing NICU doctor you could ever have. He really was. Um, my daughter was born. She was four pounds, eleven ounces. Um, and of course, they go off the nightly weights. So um, she was born at ten thirty in the morning, 
and by that night, of course, they always lose ounces. I mean, that's normal. So they started her weight off at four pounds, one ounce. She was 21 and a half inches long, so she was basically nothing but arms and legs. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> she was tiny, but boy, she was a fighter, and that's her NICU doctor said, I've never seen such a little pit squeak in my life. He said, these nurses have had it with her, <laughs> and he said, you need to go talk to those nurses, so I talked to the lead nurse, and she said, she will scream bloody murder until she gets fed. She knows when, like, she was being fed every three hours, but she was only getting, um, technically only eating five cc's, and we're talking, like, very little. That's all she could handle at that time, and uh, she said she knows when it's time to eat, and we had to literally switch her schedule to where she was the first one to be fed because she would scream bloody murder until she got fed. And, uh, that, and yes, that is my child now. Yeah. <laughs> she is very strong-willed, very hard-headed, <laughs> so to speak. Um, she was perfect. She was fine. Um, nothing was wrong. Like, her lungs were developed. We were very very blessed that God allowed her to have fully developed lungs. They were afraid that her lungs hadn't fully developed and they would have to, you know, keep her in the incubator or whatever. Not this little girl at all. She hung in there. Um, in two weeks, start to take her home. She was five pounds, two ounces when we start to take her home. So she was about the size of a I would say like a cabbage patch doll, but skinny, like little skinny, scrawny little thing. And um, I'm telling you, three the hours, that child was starving. Mm. <laughs> and uh, eventually she increased like a normal size bottle and, and what have you. Um, but me and her dad um, only stayed together another for about two months after she was born. So she was about two, two and a half months. And he... Um, basically kicked me out of my house um, with a brand new baby and I had after six weeks after I had her I had my gallbladder surgery so I was really hurting at the time you know it rolled around for him to kick us out he moved in a girl that had six kids she had custody of two of them the other ones had take, got taken from their fathers um, they each had a different father um, and she was not a good person. She was on meth, and that's what he chose. And I moved out. I moved in with friends, you know, bounced houses with friends and what have you, and really didn't know what I was going to do. I kept working at the hospital because that's all I knew. Uh -huh. um, you know, I just was lost for a little while, yeah. you know. I moved to Tulsa, and... You know, thought, well, let's start all over. Emily was two at that time. Um, and her dad was in and out, you know, in and out. Um, and then, you know, I had a wonderful boyfriend in that time period. You know, we moved to Tulsa. I had a wonderful boyfriend. I will never say anything ugly about him um, because he really was a good guy. I just had too much baggage that I hadn't taken care of. And... My daughter at that time, she was diagnosed with um, Asperger's syndrome, um, OCD, uh, 
yeah, that's what he had on this record that I knew of at that time. Um, and I did end up marrying this man. Um, not saying it was the best decision in my life. Um, everything was good. He came home in November of 2014. Um, everything was fine for about the first month. And then he got on meth, and I didn't know. I knew something was different. I just didn't know exactly what. Um, by Christmas, I had in, had surgery, um, and he didn't he didn't like that fact that I was out of his sight. Um, he was very demanding, very controlling. Um, I also got in a head-on collision. Um, I was about five days post my surgery. I was going to the store to get um, some soup, of all things, and the bridge had iced over, and there was a truck in front of me, and I was in a um, Chevy Silverado extended cab truck, you know, and then there's another big truck in front of me, and so we were slowing down on the bridge, and this girl, and I'm going to tell you this is the funniest thing, and God kind of gives you a little laugh every now and then. Um, she had a 2001 Chevy Silverado single cab, same color blue as my truck. I had a 2000 Chevy Silverado extended cab. Hmm. She come over on the bridge way too fast, almost ran into the person in front of her. She cut her wheel, came down sideways. So it's a four-lane bridge, and then you have, like, a little median kind of in the middle. She literally came from three lanes over to hit me, driver to driver, head on. Oh, my gosh. And I walked away with one small puncture wound in my leg, and I'm going to say God saved my life that night. And this will be more than one time that God saved my life, but he definitely saved my life that that night. Um, I went to the hospital, and they thought I would have something wrong with me. You know, the surgery would be messed up, or there would be something wrong. Um, and, I, and I have to say, God did save me. I had a first responder. Um, the guy that was in front of me in the truck, he came, and when he opened the door the door handle came off and he's like I am so sorry your eyes broke your door handle at that point I was like I don't care about the door handle I'm like I just had surgery and I'm in pain and you know first responder came up she actually went and picked up my husband and my daughter um, from our house that was literally like just a little ways away um, then I had a surgeon came up to me and he checked me out and he said okay if I don't leave now I'm not going to be able to get through this and I won't be able to get to the hospital. He said, I will personally read your, your CAT scan and anything else that we need to. I will meet you there. He was even surprised that there was nothing wrong with me. I literally went in there on a neck brace and a back braid, you know, the back, um, the back board and everything. And nothing was wrong with me. But that one little puncture wow. wound. That was it. And I had a black, I had two black eyes from my glasses being shoved into my eyeballs from my mm. hair bag. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband at that time come into that ER and he wasn't concerned about me. He was concerned that I had wrecked the only vehicle that we had and that he had no transportation. Well, yeah. 
I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that's all you can say. It's like, wow, yeah. I'm your wife. I went through a lot with you, and now you're telling me that you just care about Trump. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, fast forward a little bit. Um, violence started a lot after that wreck because I was to blame. Um, by April, um, I had lost my job because I got laid off. Um, which put more strain on us because he didn't have a job. And he got his first assault and battery with strangulation charge that year from me. Um, He went into, I'll quote-unquote, rehab. It's supposed to be a rehab. I don't think it does much. Um, Basically, they just get farmed out to the chicken plants to work, and they're supposed to get, you know, some sort of rehab, and he escaped. I was going to divorce him, but, you know, didn't have a lot of money. I was on unemployment, so I ended up able to move me and my daughter out of the trailer that we were in to another place on the other side of town. Didn't think he could find us. He did. Um, This is where things got really bad, um, the violence was worse. He was very paranoid. He was very much so on this. And um, by the time this was all said and done, um, he was finally arrested in November. Um, I had stayed with my dad from October to November because um, I was able to convince my dad that I needed to, I needed help and I desperately needed to get out of this place because he's going to end up killing us. Um, he ended up, I think, with four assault and batteries and one assault and battery on a minor child. Um, I was able to get the divorce from him in December. Um, and this is where the legal stuff is a lot crazier. You know, I had a sheriff that didn't really want to do his job, so to speak, and really didn't protect us. Um, not as much as he should have I, in my eyes, but there's so much corruption after all of that that... Um, it just gets worse. Um, my ex-husband tried to hang himself a week after he was arrested. Um, they found him in the middle of all of it, I guess you could say. Um, he survived. He was made a trustee at the county jail by January, and he assaulted a female inmate. Um, apparently, our county jail didn't learn from our first set of lawsuits. There was a lot of um, rape that had happened between jailers and inmates from males being able to go on the female side and what have you. Um, And we had a multi-million dollar lawsuit just not even a year or two before this all happened. And he assaulted this girl in jail. And um, of course, she couldn't do anything until she got out of jail before she could tell anybody because my husband's very intimidating, and he's a trustee. So who's gonna who's gonna protect you? You know, um, he left to go to prison because he got was on parole from Missouri. He got paroled back to Missouri, um, and I thought everything was fine. I thought, okay, now we've got rid of him. You know, everything's gonna be okay. That was February. I had a permanent protective order in place. Um, 
I was divorced from him. Everything was going to be good until May of 2016. That was that year. Um, I'll never forget this day. It was May 15th, and it was the afternoon. I was in the middle of cooking, um, and I had brought home a brochure from um, one of the pregnancy centers we have. We have two pregnancy centers, one in, in two towns, and they kind of, like, help young mothers that are pregnant and, you know, to get diapers and things like that. But they also do a lot of education of, you know, how to talk to your kids about sex and what have you. Um, mm-hmm. She was 11, and I thought, you know, it's about that time because they're already talking. I mean, they're little kids to me that's too young. But, you know, these kids are talking about this stuff in school, and I thought, okay, well, I'll just bring this home, and we'll talk about it. You know, she was kind of skimming through it, and, oh, out of the blue, she just goes, Mom, um, George had sex with me, and I died. Oh, my gosh. I died. Um... And I, the words that I uttered out of my mouth was, why didn't you tell me? And I just was in so much shock. I called, you know, our local police department. They came out and said, well, it happened while you guys were in county. Um, I had to wait for a county officer to come. And I'm telling you, God really walked me through this. Her counselor literally lived a block up the road from me. So she was able to come down and sit with Emily while I talked to the officers. Um, I just wanted to be sick. I just wanted to throw up. I wanted to scream. I just wanted to, you know, scratch something and punch something and rip it to shreds. You know, if it wasn't him, it was. It had to be something. I mean, I was just in that state of how did I not know? But during that time of that time period of that summer, as I call it, um, he had so much control over me, and he would literally beat me until I was almost passed out, or I have passed out on him, and he would, you know, give me back to consciousness again, and then he would throw me in bed, and here, have some pain pills, and I would just go to sleep, because, you know, my face would be the size of a basketball, and... You know, my daughter's in the middle of all this, you know, and I can't escape, and I'd call the cops and try to get him to go away, and they would never go get him. They wouldn't find him, or they couldn't find him, or whatever, and I didn't didn't even have a clue. He would, you know, wire the door shut with coat hangers so that we couldn't leave, and we went through hell, and I'm just thinking, how did I not know? Well, when you're a prisoner, you're, you're not always going to know everything that happens. Um, and a lot of counseling since then, um, but I died. And I blamed myself at first, and I said, no, it's not me to blame. He's an adult. He knows what he was doing, and he did it. Um, so when my daughter went and did a forensic interview, and it was not even 12 hours after she had told me and she talked to the cops and what have you, you know, she's just kind of in her own shock. And we went straight first thing the next morning and she shut down. And of course she did. Of course, of course she shut down. Um, so we wait, we had to wait another day. She, um, they didn't have any appointments open. She was ready to talk, so we had to wait a day. She went in for her second interview and spilled her guts. 
Um, I don't know anything. Um, it would be considered coaching if I knew anything that happened to her because I could tell her what to say, how to say it, what have you. And it's better if I stayed in the dark and at that point and even now I'm like, I'm pretty happy with staying in the dark right now. I don't think I could mentally handle it at this moment. I know today I've, I've went through a lot and I've, you know, done a lot of counseling. I've got myself to that point. I'm like, you know, eventually it'll be okay and I'll be able to handle it and not like flip out on her, you know, not on her, but in, you know, like my emotions of going crazy. Um, but I wasn't allowed to know anything. All I knew was I had to be strong and I had to be there for my daughter and she's going to self-destruct and she's going to take out a lot on me because I'm her mom. Her dad hadn't been in her life for about five years. Um, and he finally contacted me and wanted to have something to do with her. Well, he had a new girlfriend. I guess this one had stuck around for a little while. Um, so she did not want her dad to know. She's 11, and it was her decision. And I talked to the investigator, and I said, does he have to know? She doesn't want anybody to know. She doesn't want him to know. And he said, technically, he's been out of her life for five years. And he said, during this time, he was nowhere to be found. So, no, she does not. We do not have to inform him at all. I have full custody. When she was born, we were not married. So when we went in for child support at that time, they didn't do the whole custody thing where, or anything like that where it's joint custody or whatever. All we did was um, mom has full custody until you decide to fight for your rights. And if you want to see your daughter, you need to come to court and ask for visitation rights and all of that stuff. But the judge looked at me and she said, you need to do it reasonable, seasonable, you know, it's up to you, you know, you need to make that, and then she would look at, she looked at him, and she's like, you need to come to court and put this into court papers where you do have visitation, and he never did, like, we're talking 11 years, he never did it, so he come back in, and, you know, she wants her dad, and I'm like, that's fine, well, you skip ahead, um, August, um, his father committed suicide, um, and he found his dad. Um, and we just got to know who his dad was. You know, he, she never met him. Um, he was drinking, but he wasn't drinking as much. His dad was a bad alcoholic, but he was you know, had cut back a lot. Um, his liver was terrible. He was, you know, he was getting to that point where it's going to be, he had stress of the liver, but he was getting to his end times of being on this earth. And um, he wanted a relationship with his daughter, uh, his daughter and his son and his granddaughter, you know. And then we don't know what happened. He just, I'm not sure. Um, so he, um, he committed suicide. Kevin called me and was like, I just want my kid. I want her to stay the weekend with us. And I said, no, your daughter is not your comfort. You know, you can't use an 11-year-old child as 
your comfort. You have to go to counseling. You need to take care of yourself. This child doesn't need to be in the middle of all of this crazy. You guys just, you know, you have too much upset going on. And um, that investigator came, the one that investigated Emily's stuff, he came and talked to me and he said, I just want to um, let you know, he said, technically I'm not really supposed to do this, but I wanted you to know that his dad really did love her. And um, he had a picture of her when she was little. She was about six months old. And I had um, given it to him probably a few months after those pictures were taken and he had kept that in his wallet and um and I knew he loved her but it was really hard on her um because the only grandparents she had was Devin's mom that she was in and out to like Devin was and she had my grandma and my grandpa had passed away before about a year before Emily was um born and uh so she really only had one stable grandparent in her life, and she was so excited to have another one, you know. So I waited a couple of weeks, and I let Emily stay the weekend with him. His mom was supposed to be there, you know. They were just going to have, you know, kind of like family time. And instead, his mom went to his sister's, and he invited all of his buddies over. Um... This is where you're supposed to start listening to your gut instincts and stuff, you know. And mine were so um, shattered that I really didn't know which instincts were correct or not. She called me on Friday night, that Friday night, and said, Mom, they're fighting. I don't know what to do. I guess him and one of his buddies, one of his buddies got really drunk, and I don't know exactly what happened. Um, so he was escorting him out the door with I, the story I got from Devin, and I talked to Emily. Apparently, she's on speaker, and he was coaching her. And so she's like, no, I'll stay. You know, I said, if you need me to, I'll come get you. I should have went and got her, but I didn't. Um, she's like, no, I want to ride the four-wheeler. You know, I want to have fun. And so I went. I didn't get her back until Sunday. And this child is probably the bravest child I've ever had in my life or ever known, will ever know, and probably the strongest woman I will ever know. Um, she came home Sunday night starving. Um, apparently, all they cooked was what was on Friday night, and Devin expected her to know how to cook her own stuff. And I was like, yeah, she can cook a few things like microwave, you know, like microwave burritos, things like that. She's not really... She's timid of the stove, you know, she burned herself before, you know, because grandma was teaching her how to cook and bake and, you know, stuff like that. But she, you know, burned her hand on the oven and, you know, we're trying to get her over that fear of, you know, cooking on the stove and stuff. I said that she can do microwave and toaster oven and stuff like that. I told you that, you know, and he just didn't understand, I guess. So this child ate leftovers and then the food ran out, basically, and she had taken ramen noodles with her to eat. You know, in case she didn't like what he cooked or whatever, but she didn't want to do it on the stove, so she just ate ramen noodles raw, basically. Um, when she came home, she said, Mom, um, she said, I had to sleep on the couch. Well, they had a sectional, and she said, me and Justin slept on the couch, and I about lost it again. 
And I said, okay, so where did Justin sleep? And did he touch you? You know, I went through the whole crazy mom, you know, questionnaire. And she said, no, he slept on one end and I slept on the other. And I knew Justin, you know, from a long time ago when he, when me and Devin were together, but I hadn't seen him since then. And, you know, I thought I knew my husband, you know, and I didn't. Um, so I was freaking out and, you know, we took her back to, you know, where we did her forensic interview and we had that counselor talk to her and her regular counselors talk to her, you know, and make sure that nothing happened. But I called her dad and I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, she could have slept with you. She could have slept in your mom's bed. She could have slept in your sister's old bed in her room. And she's like, the nurse's room is too messy. She wasn't going to be able to get there. I said, she could have went to your mom's bed and slept by herself. I said, she did not need to be sleeping on the couch. That old with a man is a child. And he said, well, there's nothing wrong with it. Justin's fine. I said, it doesn't matter who it is. I said, she doesn't know him from Adam for one, but for two, you're supposed to protect this child and nothing happened, but that doesn't mean anything. What happens the next time, you know, freaked out on him. And he's like, you're insane, you know, whatever. And any judge would say it was fine. And I was like, you're, you're, you're kidding, right? You know, like, how do you not see that this is wrong? I said, he said, well, she wanted to sleep on the couch because she wanted to watch TV. It was like 11 o'clock at night. And I was like, her bedtime's 8.30, 9 o'clock, usually 9 o'clock on the weekends. Um, no, for one, she's 11. She doesn't get to make that decision. Uh, two, you're the parent, and you should have made that decision. And for three, there were other beds that she needed to sleep in. You know, you're her dad. You're supposed to take care of those things. Mm-hmm. And luckily nothing happened this time. So I made all of his visits from there on out, even with his mother as supervised with me. I said, you can take the court if you want it differently. <laughs> Which, you know, he would threaten me to take the court. He never has. Not once. Um, so when he did visits with her, which were very far and few between after that, um, he would bring his new girlfriend who thought she knew everything, um, didn't speak to me, and that was fine. Like I said, you know, I was only there to be a fly on the wall. Them two needed to have, you know, their father-daughter time. And, of course, all he would do is he would take us out to lunch. And I said, stop buying me lunch. I'm not here for that. You need to take time with your daughter. But he would just take her out to lunch, and then he would take her to um, the video game store, bought her a PS3, bought her a couple of games and an extra controller, and he couldn't leave the girlfriend behind because that was his witness, he said. And Emily didn't like it because he didn't pay attention to her at all. He would talk to his girlfriend, and he would talk to her like she was like three or four years old because that was pretty much the last time you really saw her. And she's like, I'm 11, and I can have a full conversation, you know. And he just didn't know how to communicate with her. I tried to put them both in counseling. He came one time, um, basically said it was a crock. And um, I pay, by the way, I didn't know how rich I was either. Um, Apparently I can pay off doctors and I can pay off counselors and stuff too. Um, With my meager, small, you know, amount of money that I was getting. Um, And he really wasn't paying child support. So, you know, but somehow I could 
pay off all these doctors to diagnose my kid and all this stuff. Um, she ended up with um, having Asperger's, um, oppositional defiance disorder, um, double palsy, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, uh, PTSD. Um, yeah. So that's what she's diagnosed with now, and ADD, ADHD, and I think it's more ADD than it is ADHD. Um, and this kid is smart. She's so smart. Um, so, and it's, it's a shame that he doesn't see that. So I went back on TNF uh, to various different families, and I said, I'm starting school. I'm going back to college. Um, I'm in the middle of all this crazy, um, and I needed to do something. So, spring of 2016, I went back to college. I went back to NEO, Northeastern Oklahoma State, or Northeastern Oklahoma A&M College, and, which is a two-year community college. Um, I don't know what I was going to do, but I was gonna at least get my basics, you know. I only had a few basics in, have a lot more to go. Um, I ended up changing my major into business administration. Um, thought my way through, uh, didn't know about student support services, um, still fighting with the county, trying to get a report written for my daughter. It took them a year and a half to write this report. It's ridiculous, but it took a year and a half. They finally wrote it last year. It's insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so as I was on and trying to go through school, I hit last semester or fall semester. Um, I was so stressed out. Apparently, after two years of being on Tanis and you're in college, if you're not at Vogue you have to do a 20 hour internship on top of your class load. And I was like, I can't do that. My class load is 15 hours this semester, so I can graduate in spring. And I've also joined, you know, the business and tech club. And, I mean, we wasn't doing a whole lot in the fall. But, you know, there was a few things that I needed to do while I was at school. And then I was also supposed to track all of my hours. And it was so much stress. And by the time I got, I went, I was about 45 minutes away from where I lived. And that's where I had to go to Tana also. So, you know, you're thinking that about an hour drive and because I had to get something new at some point in time and taking on 15 hours worth of classes mind you yes two were online but that doesn't mean that it was any less work it actually was more work and then they were trying to internship me out too and I also had to pick up my daughter by six o'clock boys and girls club you know shuts down and that's a long day for her Anyway, I didn't make my 20 hours a week, and they were like, well, you have to, or you have to get off the program. I said, well, in tears, the next day I called my caseworker at DHS, and I said, I can't do this. I can't do this. I said, I can't. I can't. You know, my daughter has enough issues. You know, and, and even now, my daughter had a lot of flashbacks. Um, she had a lot of problems at school. She'd been in the mental hospital twice since then. Um, there was a lot going on with her, and I was struggling to try to keep my grades up. Um, I did end up failing one class, but that was okay. Um, and I'm not going to take that as, you know, a failure. 
it was me surviving that semester. So I took myself off TNS, and um, a friend of mine told me about student support services and said, hey, won't you come, and you can get tutoring, and you can get support. And I walked in, and, you know, I love these women with all my heart. I told them kind of what was going on in, in my life. Um, told them, you know, where I was at that point. I had just got in the out of the out of the mental hospital. Um, I said, you know, I said I can't, I can't do this anymore, you know. And that was, I mean, I wasn't getting very much off of TNS, but it was enough to pay my, it was enough to help pay my bills. You know, my daughter is on SSI, and I was now finally getting some child support, and so we were able to keep ourselves afloat, and I was able to keep going to college. Um, and I walk in, and these, these wonderful, wonderful ladies just said, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You know, we're here. So come in. You know, when you don't have a class, come in here, you know, and do your homework, and we'll help you with whatever you need. So... I walked in, I think it was October, I believe, was when I started student support services. And I literally did, you have a green sheet, and you get 300 points. And that was from cultural events, um, you know, the seminars that they had, um, power lunches, things like that, that they provided for us of different things that we could do. I... Usually it takes two semesters, like about a semester and a half usually, to get all 300 points. But I worked very hard, and I got all 300 points by the time it was finals for fall. And I was the first one to make her goal, make the goal, period. And so um, I got the a larger amount than what everybody else got because I had turned mine in first. Um, they took us on transfer trips. I went to the University of Arkansas, um, Northeastern State um, University in Tahlequah. Um, they took us, um, we went to, uh, I think it was Bentonville, I want to say, and we went to this old-time kind of feel. It, it, it's not really a play. It's kind of like a, it, it's a play, but it's not. It, it, kind of set up like an old radio station, you know, like way back then when you, right. they had to act out all their sound effects and, you know, and we watched Frankenstein and, um, we got to eat dinner there. They provided us dinner. They provided us our tickets for that, you know, and we had such a good time and I bonded with people that I probably wouldn't, didn't even know that was even on campus, you know, I'm 37 and, you know, these younger kids are coming with us, and we have older students, you know, that are my age, a little bit older than me, and some beyond that, you know, and we're all together, and we all start bonding together and making these friendships, and, you know, we had so much fun, and every time we would go to, you know, to any of the colleges or to, you know, anything, or we were doing power lunches or seminars or whatever, they made it so fun. I kept us engaged and interested. You know, they brought in wonderful speakers. And by December, you know, I worked my tailwind off, and I walked in to Lainey's office in tears, and I was like, they're going to cut me off of my food stamps because I'm not technically in a, um, I'm not technically in, I'm not in TNF, 
am not considered a student, even though I'm going to school 15 hours a semester, I wasn't going 20 hours a week, so they wouldn't, so DHS could not count me as a student, and only Emily was counted as a student, and she had turned 13, the laws changed, and that parents are no longer allowed to be on the food stamps unless they are on, you know, some sort of, you know, training thing or in 20 hours of some kind of class mm-hmm. a week. And I was like, you know, we're barely making it now. And lady said, don't worry about it. We'll take care of you. She said, what classes do you know? Can you tutor? And so I was like, well, uh, I haven't had college algebra yet, so count me out at that. I said, I can do, oh, you know, some algebra up to, you know, like geometry, I can, I can do geometry and I can do some algebra, you know, I can do probably the fundamental algebra, like the, um, uh, oh goodness, last know what, um, it's the classes, the remedial classes that you have to, that, you know, you have to do if you can't, if your scores are not high enough, and, you know, I'd already taken two classes out of that already, you know, back when I graduated high school, um, when I started college there the first time I had remedial reading, remedial English, and remedial math. I'm a high school high, a high school graduate and still having to take remedial classes in college. That's insane. You know, I never really learned how to write a paper because each teacher taught you differently. So each year you got taught to a different way to do a paper and they're saying, no, that's not right. You know, and I use transitional words that you really weren't supposed to use, like the next reason is or whatever. You're not supposed to do that, you know, and didn't know that until I took these remedial classes. And so I was like, yeah, I can do that. You know, I can, you know, I've went through my um, biology classes. I had these, I did zoology, so I can kind of help out with that and, you know, what have you. So she's like, okay. Let me, I'll take care of it. So she got me on work study for spring of this year. And I worked as a tutor. And I got 15 hours a week, which was nice. Because I was able to keep Emily in school. I worked while she was in school. And I got home right around the time that she was getting home off the bus. My neighbor would get her off the bus for me. And, you know, it was really, really awesome. Because in that time of crisis, you know, they're like, don't worry about it. We'll going to get you taken care of, you know. Um, Donnie would pray for us, you know. If we ever need prayer, we could go to her. She's like, what do you need prayer for? Let's sit down and let's pray about it, you know. Bobby, she um, she would listen to us. She would read our papers. She would, you know, critique them and say, here's what you need to change, you know, or otherwise it looks really good, you know. Um, Julie's the head of our student support services, and she would do anything for anybody. Yeah. Um, you know, she would pray with us. She would hug us, and she'd say, "You know, doing good. You're almost there." If it wasn't for these ladies, I wouldn't have graduated college. Oh. Um, Amazing. I did college algebra my last semester because every time I tried to put it on my schedule, they would get canceled because I would always pick like the eight a.m. class or the nine a.m. class, and mm-hmm. nobody wants to get up that early in the morning. But luckily, this one stuck, and I uh, had an eight a.m. college algebra class. And in my mind, which I'm glad I did it that way, um, it's the first class that I had to do. Uh, I'm freshly, I'm freshly awake, and I'm more apt to learn. 
what you're telling me. Then by the time noon hit, so all of my classes were back to back all morning. Yeah. I had four classes. Um, and I survived. Yeah. I'm not sure, but you know, I survived in the afternoons. I tutored. I tutored this wonderful, wonderful little 19 year old that was turning her life around and, you know, she passed her remedial algebra class and she said, I'm ready for college algebra and I said, great. I said, you can do it, you know, hers, her, she's very smart, she just didn't have that confidence, you know, and I think a lot of us that walk in there don't have confidence anymore, you know, like I said, you become a family, and me and my few of my other friends, you know, I had them join in, I'm like, you know, you really need to get over here, you know, it's really good for you to be here, I said, they'll support you, and we get to go see colleges, they'll help us, you know, get... You know, they'll pay for our college application. They'll take us and take tours, and they will, you know, bend over backwards for us. I said, we really, you know, you need to come, and I'm really glad, you know, that I was able to pull a couple of people with us, you know. Yeah. And, of course, we all bawled. You know, we're all graduating. There was quite a few of us that actually graduated out of student support services, and um, we're pretty close-knit. You know, even, even... the older ones, you know, I say, say well, they don't want to make them feel like they're elderly or anything like that, but, you know, we had this one gentleman who, he lost his wife, and he's like, you know, I just was bored, and I just wanted to do something, he said, he couldn't sit at home anymore, and his name's Bill, and he is absolutely amazing, okay, you know, he just, he takes one class a semester, and, you know, he'll just come in and, you know, he'll talk to you for a minute or two. And yeah. He's doing humanities right now. And so he just was like, you know, I just had to do something. And, you know, it was a joy to have him in there. You know, he had really good life experiences. You know, you could talk to him and he cracked us up quite a few times. And, you know, he just made our, made our world, you know. Yeah. I'm just glad that we were able to have, you know, from, you know, the high school students. We had a few high school students that, you know, I had classes with that were doing both high school and college classes. And I'm like, that's insane. But I understand why, you know. If you're smart enough and you're able to do it, do it. It takes off a few classes, you know, and gets your career started quicker. And, you know, you go from these, as I call younger kids, up to way past my age, you know, you pull them all together in one room and you really learn off of each other. Yes. And you really are able to support another, but you're also able to tell the younger generation, you know, yeah, you're going through some stuff and yeah, it sucks right now. And it might seem like the whole world just crashed around you, but you can survive because we did. Yes. And we came back. Yeah. You know, we get, we get to tell them, you know, there is hope. There's hope. You just have to wait for it. You just have to, you know, keep the faith that you can keep going forward. And graduation sucked. <laughs> it really did suck. Um, so I think it was a week after graduation. We got to go to Trio Day in Oklahoma City. But it actually was in February, but we had a huge ice storm happen, and so we couldn't go. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. we, yeah. So Oklahoma City was like, oh, we can't do it. So yeah. they canceled on us, which was fine. I understood that they ended up letting us do it after after we graduated. I think they were still um, 
in classes at that college that um, did it, and we got to go in there, and we you know, our first, now a few of us was our first trio day. It was really nice to see, you know, the, the you know, all the age ranges, you know. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that trio had went so young, you know, upper bound and all these, you know, and it was really nice to see, you know, the older and the newer kids coming in and the stories and, you know, it was a really good conference. Um, we learned a lot out of it and, of course, you know, it turned into a cultural day at the Oklahoma City Memorial Bombing Museum and that really, that takes your breath away when you go through that. But mm-hmm. it was really nice to hear, you know, the younger kids speaking and stuff and it's kind of a shame that there isn't a whole lot of student support services, you know, the older people that, you know, the college you know, students, you know, they don't really have a lot of them in there. They're more geared towards, you know, the younger generation. And I understand that, but I mean, they had a few speakers, you know, but there's a few things, you know, that I wish, you know, that we could hear our adults, you know, students be able to say, you know, this is where you can go to, you know, this is where you can keep pushing forward. And, Telling our stories and being able to let them know, you know, you're not alone. You're still here. You, you still matter. And it doesn't matter how old you are. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what I got out of SSS right now. Out of you know, is you know, you're still important. You still belong, and you still have people that love you. And now I'm going to University of Arkansas. Um, they have student support services as well, and yeah. I will be joining them again and I'll still stay in this um, and I'm going to get my bachelor's of marketing um, a minor in ERP and mm-hmm. then I'll go on and get my MBA well wow. Rebecca first of all so. congratulations on everything your story is Thank astounding you. like I said it's still moving me to tears right now and everything that you've gone oh. through everything that you've persevered through and how far you've gotten it's impressive. It's it's to be admired, and I'm so happy to have had you on this podcast because your story certainly needs to be told. Yeah. Um, well, I also have to tell you, um, they finally decided to um, put the charges upon the judge. So I'm hoping that I will know in the next couple of weeks whether or not they're going to charge my husband with my daughter's rape, and then we can move forward from there as well. So, yeah. you know. There's happiness at the end of the tunnel. You just have to go through the pain and you have to learn from it and push yourself forward and know that it's okay to make mistakes. We all do. Mm -hmm. It's just what you do the next step is what's important. It's okay to fall. It's okay to go backwards a couple of steps sometimes. Mm -hmm. But it's after that, what you do is important. If you stand up, you sit down, or you just keep backpedaling. You know, you have to stand up and make that first baby step and just keep going, even if it's just baby steps, because yes. you're not going to get anywhere if you don't move. So, I love like it. I said, yep. SSS really yeah. kept me going, even on the days that I just like, I can't do this anymore. I'm like, yes, you can. You're not sitting here, you know, you can't be giving stuff about yourself because you have to keep going. You have a daughter, you have these goals that you have set for yourself you're not going to fail you have to keep going and I did and I am 
and kudos to you, Rebecca. Everything that everything good that's happening now, and everything every progress that's happening for you, uh, I'm your story is just to be admired. And I'm so proud to have uh, your story featured in our podcast in this Let's Talk Trio podcast because again, it's just something that's that people need to hear. And you're right, and there's not a lot of trio programs. Uh, you know, there's very limited funding, and I hope my hope is that with this podcast and with partnership with uh, the large, larger nar- national organizations that we get the word out and that uh, people, congressional people, hear these stories and see how impactful TRIO programs are. Oh, absolutely. Like, we, we have to keep these programs. Like, I'm excited for my daughter to graduate in a few years because when I get my MBA, she'll be graduating high school. She's going to need that support. She's going to need that you know, tutoring and what have you, even if it's just, you know, oh my gosh, I don't understand biology, you know, yeah. you have to take those wonderful classes, even though it's not nothing to do with your career, you know, but you still got to take them, and, you know, I want her to have the opportunities that I had, and, you know, I want to be there, and if whatever I have to do is what I'll do, you know, we need to let them know that this is so important, and it's not just for the younger ones, it's for the old ones, too, that... Absolutely. Desperately needed yeah. as well, and it's for all ages, I think really. We, yeah, I think we, I think they kind of forget about us because they're like, "Oh, well, you have a program, okay, you're good now." But we have to keep going, and you have to keep checking in. And these politicians and what have you—they have to see that there's more to life than what they're seeing in front of them, because there's a whole other world that gets ignored, and we're. I don't want to put myself in categories or anything like that and say, oh, I'm minorities or whatever. We come from all walks of life. We come from all age groups. We come from mm, all, absolutely. you know, absolutely. different situations. I mean, it could be the, you know, the rich kid that just fell on hard luck or whatever, but we still have to have that support. And I really hope we get more funding because I'm telling you, without this program, I would not finish. And I know I I know I have to have it in order to finish in, in, college, in university. That's why I chose, you know, even the university I did because it did have to do with support services. And I knew yeah. I would still keep continuing to get that support and knowing that these people care about us and want us to succeed. Yes, absolutely. Well, Rebecca, again, thank you so much for sharing your story. I want to thank my special guest, Rebecca Scott, for being on the Let's Talk Trio podcast. Such an inspirational story. We really appreciate you uh, being on this podcast and sharing your story, Rebecca. So thank you so much. So to everyone out there listening, I know this is one of our longer podcasts, but this story was so worth listening from the very beginning until the very end. And these are the stories. Uh, Her story just reminded me of what the mission of this podcast is, is to bring those stories to life and to really let you see how impactful TRIO programs are to students who really want that support and really want to um, continue climbing the ladder of education. I think that uh, our congressional representatives may have lost sight of how really truly impactful these programs continue to be in the lives of many students. Uh, And it's just very important to continue this tradition of providing that support for students. I know that many universities and colleges provide student access and student achievement uh, and they try to provide this in safety net but I I know that with TRIO students have a layer of protection 
to really help themselves and really understand the college process. Uh, in this case, it's a student wanting to find her way back and finding uh, her own version of success. Because as we know, life throws us a curveball and it sometimes doesn't play nice. And we have to be flexible and uh, try to uh, maneuver and adapt as best we can. But with support programs like these, it makes adapting so much easier. And it allows the student to really uh, not have to stress about uh, where are they going to get the resources to address the issues that they're facing. So that is part of my closing thoughts. I know I usually announce that at the very beginning, but uh, for me, uh, this passion of recording stories and hearing students, I also really want to hear from staff and from former staff and alumni and see what they're doing. And these stories are just so much more important. They bring life to TRIO. It's not just us talking about TRIO and saying the great things that TRIO does. It's hearing from these students and hearing how personally impactful it becomes for them. So that's my closing thoughts. Uh, again, I truly appreciate you, Rebecca, for coming onto the show uh, and for being on the podcast. Uh, you really drove home the point of TRIO programs and how it helps students. To those national organizations or regional organizations or state organizations, if you'd ever like to be an underwriter for any one of our episodes for Let's Talk Trio in the future, let me know. Hit us up on Facebook. Make sure you search for Let's Talk Trio, and it's the Trio. You'll see the Trio logo with the uh, microphone on it. Uh, click on that, and you can send me a message directly. Uh, if you want to be featured or you want to be a guest on the podcast uh, to tell your story or share your information about Trio or maybe give us some policy updates. I welcome new guests all the time. Uh, our list is currently growing, and I will let you know. Um, right now, I have another guest coming up next week, and uh, there are more people uh, wanting to be on the podcast to share their story. So the sooner you can get at me, uh, show me shoot me a message, and uh, let's get together so we can figure out what uh, day and time works about best for you. I will always be respectful of your time and your input. So I would never, I would try not to right, overtake the interview. You are definitely the person sharing, and I want to be respectful of that. Uh, I really want to thank my contributors, Roderick Chambers, our honorary co-host and advisor for Let's Talk Trio. Scott Kendall, also an advisor and tech support for Let's Talk Trio. And I really want to say a special thanks to my family for continuing to support me in this endeavor. So for me, from my little recording studio here in Fort Collins, Colorado, this is Juan Rivas signing off for another episode of Let's Talk Trio. Thank you very much for listening.